Hi, this is Larry Gottlieb, and the title of this talk is Human Beings, Freedom, and the Quantum Field. What we're up to here is inquiring into what it is to be a human being. Now, all of us are familiar with the idea of human being. We use that phrase with a sense that we know what it refers to. Most of us are familiar with the word freedom and what that points to. And most of us are totally unfamiliar with the term quantum field. In this talk, we'll inquire into what it really is to be a human being. In a bit, we'll examine the usual definition of human being, and we'll see if it's supported by what I call bedrock science, principles that have proven their ability to explain what we see. In order to conduct this inquiry, we have to start with some basic premise. In other words, we have to start on the same page. And I'm choosing for this purpose a premise based on my interactions with all of you. And choosing that premise will save us a lot of time because it will form a foundation on which we can build the ideas we'll examine in this talk. So this premise is as follows, that we humans are more than we see with our eyes and hear with our ears, and we are more than we think we are. In other words, we are more than our bodies and minds. So my premise is that we are spirit expressed as individual beings. We incarnate and reincarnate on this planet in order to learn, to grow, and in the process to expand the possibilities in being human. I'm going to start our inquiry into the true nature of humanness with a discussion about what everybody knows, to which I sometimes attach the term common sense. What everybody knows implies that there exists a bedrock of common understanding underneath all of the ideas which we debate and about which we have different opinions. What everybody knows is never debated, simply because nobody ever questions it. It never occurs to anybody to question it. There is a joke told by the late writer David Foster Wallace, and it goes like this. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? The fish doesn't see the water itself, but if the water is clouded or colored, the fish may or may not be aware of that, but the color or cloudiness affects his view of whatever he's looking at because he sees everything through the water. And I want to use this metaphor to point at the idea of what we all know. The water represents what the fish knows, but isn't aware that he knows. So regarding common sense, or what everybody knows, we say first that the way we see the world is shaped or colored by our belief systems. We don't see our belief systems themselves. They're transparent to us. That is to say, we don't see our worldview. We just see the world through it. When we use the saying, it's like water to the fish, that's what we mean. So common sense that which we never examine is the water we swim in. Next, we said that what we all know usually turns out to be wrong, or at least incomplete, 
no matter how passionately we defend it. I like to use the symbol of flat earth to represent how people used to see the world. That was one belief that was common on the planet at a given time, but we'll have it refer to all those things that we humans once believed but have now discarded when science or our intellectual pursuits or our experience convinces us that it's old news, that there's a better way of looking at things. And most of us would consider a view like flat earth to be primitive. And we also saw that common sense always lags behind scientific understanding. And that's understandable. Science, or even just any one of us, experiences something that doesn't fit our belief system. And you think about it, or even experiment with it, and you say, yeah, that's really true. The earth really is round. And then you can discard the what everybody knows about the earth being flat. See, the idea that the earth is flat doesn't represent reality. So I will pose a question to you. Is it possible that we moderns believe in stuff that isn't real? To get us start with that question, let's first explore the crucial difference between how something appears and what it actually is. If you go to the beach, you'll probably see the horizon. And there's a line there, which appears to be an edge where the sky meets the sea. And there was a time when most people believed it was an edge. Now, however, we know that the horizon is simply an appearance caused by the divergence between a straight line, or line of sight, and the curvature of the earth. But if you were a mariner, and you believe in the existence of that edge, you don't sail straight out from land, because you might fall off. When science, or your experience, if you're intrepid, convinces you that the edge isn't real, but is only an appearance, now you're freed up to discover the new world. The bottom line is, the edge isn't real, even though the horizon is. It's just not what it looks like. And you know, there's a word we use to denote the confusion between something that is believed to be true and that which is true. And that word is superstition. There was a time when people believed that a black cat crossing your path signified that you were going to have bad luck and that things were going to go south. Groucho Marx had a quote about that. He said, a black cat crossing your path signifies that the animal is going somewhere. Straightforward, wouldn't you say? Now, a couple of points about superstitions. Consider the sentence, Black cats are bad luck. Does that sentence represent a superstition? Most of us would agree that black cats are bad luck is a superstition. Okay, how about the sentence, black cats are bad luck is a superstition? Is that a superstition? No. Black cats are bad luck is a superstition is not a superstition. It's just a statement about something that used to be considered a superstition. It's useful to make that distinction, and I'll show you why. Superstitions can have power over us, but only when they're held not to be superstitions, but rather truths. 
if you know that it's a superstition that there's an edge out there that you could fall off of, it doesn't have any power over you. But if you don't know about that superstition, it can and will affect your range of possible choices. So now my question becomes, what superstitions might now cloud or color the water we swim in? Because if there are superstitions embedded in our worldview, they will cloud or color whatever we look at through or from that worldview. Some people still believe in flat earth. If you Google flat earth, you'll find out that there are people who defend that idea. And with all due respect, some people still believe that the earth is a few thousand years old and that the fossil record was created by God to confuse us or test our faith or something like that. And most of us, if we're honest, consider ourselves better educated or somehow above those who believe these superstitions to be real. But underneath all that is something virtually all of us believe— that the world we perceive would be there if all of us were to disappear. That the world is pretty much the way we perceive it to be, allowing for inaccuracies caused by bad eyesight, improper education, etc. I call what we think is real an is. We humans believe that the world is an is. So there is a world out there that's independent of our presence in it. Let's see if that's true, or if it's a superstition. Let's find out. Let's see if we can make this idea tangible for ourselves. Imagine, if you will, a piece of furniture or some other object in your environment that's made of wood. Let's test what we might call the isness of this object. So we might start by asking, what's it made of? Most of us would probably answer, it's made of wood. Well, what's the wood made of? I looked it up, and the primary component of wood is cellulose. Okay, what's the cellulose made of? The internet tells me that it's made of molecules containing certain kinds of atoms. You can, if you like, pull up a picture of the molecular structure of cellulose. Okay, so far so good. But if you now ask what those atoms are made of, and you want to do some bedrock science about them, the answers start to get squirrely. It turns out that when you want to analyze atoms, you have to use quantum theory. Quantum theory gives you reliable, experimentally verifiable answers to any questions you might ask of it. But quantum theory also says some very strange things some very non-intuitive things about the world. Here are three quotes from a book, Quantum Enigma, by two lecturers at the University of California. First, quantum theory tells us that an object can be in two or more places at the same time. Right away, we're in trouble. Second, the object's existence at the particular place where it happens to be found becomes an actuality only upon its observation. And third, quantum theory thus denies the existence of a physically real world independent of its observation. 
In other words, quantum theory flatly contradicts the idea that we are observers of a world that doesn't care whether or not we observe it. And quantum theory definitely doesn't fit with common sense, with what everybody knows. If you really consider what quantum theory tells us, I think you'll find out that the world isn't an is, but is rather an appears as, like the horizon appearing to be an edge you could fall off of. The world appears to be permanent and stable, and it appears to be the same for everybody, though some might perceive it differently, as we said before. It appears to be real, but so did the edge mariners used to see when they looked at the horizon and were afraid of falling off of it. Okay, in the light of all that, let's look at the classical idea or definition of human being and see if we need to modify that idea in view of modern physics. So this is the what everybody knows about what's pointed to by the phrase human being. Classically speaking, a human being is a man, woman, or child of the species Homo sapiens, distinguished from other animals by superior mental development, power of articulate speech, and upright stance. Now you can pull up a diagram that shows a classification scheme for animals found on Earth. Let's look a bit more closely at such a scheme. It's a classification method with which you can try to understand the origin of species, in Darwin's phrase. When you classify creatures in the standard fashion, you deal with things like kingdom and phylum and class, order, family, genus, and species. It's a complicated system that looks like a tree with a trunk, thick branches, thinner branches, and so on. And at the end of one of those branches, there we are, right? You could say this idea of human being is object-oriented. And we think of ourselves as objects against the background of the world. It's an object-oriented definition of human being. One of the problems with the object-oriented view of human beings is that it locks us into separation and competition. And not the kind of competition you see on the Olympics that makes each of us better, but the kind that creates winners and losers, haves and have-nots, us and them. The quantum viewpoint, on the other hand, allows us to overcome separation through something called non-locality. See, locality is an idea in physics to denote that each object has a separate location. But in terms of our experience, how many locations can we experience? One, here. Literally, all there is, is here. It's impossible to experience any other location than here. Everywhere else is abstract and intangible. We're all here. Non-locality is a demonstrable result of carefully controlled experiments in physics, that have been done for over a hundred years. Quantum physics has established that non-locality is a fundamental principle of the world, but it violates common sense. And notice here, please, the lag time 
between scientific discovery and what everybody knows or common sense. The existence of objects where we find them, including our bodies, is literally a product of observation by us. Our bodies are objects, but according to quantum physics, their existence where we find them is a product of observation. So we can't be our bodies because they show up only as a function of us observing them. Okay, so if an object-based definition of human being doesn't work, what does? Recall that the premise of this talk is that what we are is spirit expressed as individual human beings. So here, then, is a potential trial definition of human being. A human being is that aspect of all that is, which brings one of many possible worlds from the quantum field into actuality. And we'll see in a bit where that might take us. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a moment. Let's leave human being there for the moment. Now let's talk about the quantum field. First, more generally, and so we're all on the same page, let's talk about fields. One of the most basic ideas in physics is that of the field. Fields are thought of as occupying all of space and of having the capacity at each point in space of affecting objects in that location. You can't see fields. They're not tangible. They're abstract. But you can experience their effects. For example, we're all familiar with gravitational fields. The gravitational field exists at all points in space, and it has the capacity to affect objects at that location. Imagine, if you will, that you are sitting underneath an apple tree, as Sir Isaac Newton is said to have done, when an apple happened to fall from the tree. Just before that apple let go, the gravitational field had the capacity to affect it. You've also probably encountered a magnetic field, if you've used a compass or played with a magnet and a bunch of iron filings. And there's also the electric field, which you can experience if you rub a balloon on your sweater and then hold it next to your hair, assuming you have enough hair to do this experiment. Now, about 150 years ago, a fellow named Maxwell discovered that electric and magnetic fields are interrelated. And now we talk about the electromagnetic field. Another point about fields. As far as we know, all fields can sustain vibrations, much like the water on the surface of a pond if you throw a rock into it. And those vibrations automatically propagate or spread out. Now, vibrations that propagate in the electromagnetic field are called light. And a final point. These vibrations, once created, in stars, for example, never die out. They will always be. The light vibrations we see coming from stars at night left those stars millions or billions of years ago. They just keep on going forever. Okay, I'd like to introduce you to Amit Goswami. He's a theoretical physicist, probably my favorite. Here's a quote from him. 
Quantum physics is the physics of possibilities, and not just material possibilities, but also possibilities of meaning, of feeling, and of intuiting. You choose everything you experience from these possibilities. So quantum physics is a way of understanding your life as one long series of choices that are in themselves the ultimate acts of creativity. Unquote. We can think of these possibilities as vibrations in the quantum field. And in the quote I just read, Amit speaks about choosing a vibration from the quantum field. Remember, the quantum field is abstract. You can't see it, but you can experience its effects. That infinitude of possibilities exists at each point in space and time, and they never die out. Once a thought or an idea is conceived of, it will always exist. Okay, back to the electromagnetic vibrations for a minute. There is an infinite scope of possible frequencies at which the electromagnetic field can vibrate. Our eyes have adapted to perceive only a very narrow slice of those frequencies, from red at the low end to violet at the high end. There are many frequencies that are too high to see, but some can be encoded with TV programs. What the TV does is it decodes one of those frequencies so we can see the program. They're all in the cable, so to speak, but you have to select one to view it. Until you do so, the programs are just in the cable as vibrations in the electromagnetic field. And according to quantum mechanics, the quantum field is awash with possible realities until we choose one and make it real or actual. To really visualize this, we need a metaphor. So this is the metaphor of the movie theater. I'll start with white light. As you may know, white light consists of all possible colors, all possible frequencies. And by the way, a prism is a device that can separate the constituents of white light so we can see them. And in our movie theater metaphor, we have a screen which reflects the light back to us so we can perceive it easily, as opposed to allowing the light from the projector bulb to enter your eyes directly, which isn't a good idea for obvious reasons. Now, each point on the screen reflects light of a particular color, or maybe all colors, at a particular intensity or brightness. But with just white light and a screen, we have a very boring movie. There's no story yet, just bright light, and you won't stay in the theater very long. In order to have a story, we first have to have a way of blocking some of the light, either entirely or at some frequencies or colors at each point on the screen. We do that by placing a film strip between the projector bulb and the screen. The light that gets through the film strip is reflected to our eyes, and as the film strip travels through the projector, our brains form a moving image we call a story. Of course, we'd forget all that if we ever knew it and just watch the movie. If the movie's good enough, we can even forget we're watching a movie. Now, how can we use this metaphor to help us understand how we create the world of our experience? 
Well, we'll use the white light to represent all possibilities, since it consists of all possible visible colors. The film strip contains and thus represents the story we tell about the world and about ourselves. And the screen represents the world as the reflection back to us of that story. Because without the screen, we still won't see anything. We need the screen to reflect back to us the story we've put in the film strip. Every time we tell our story, we make a selection of one possible world from the quantum field. And that possibility, over time, comes to be reflected back to us as the world of our experience. And when you get a bunch of humans together who tell stories with common elements, you get a shared world of experience you can talk to others about and in which you can interact with others. Okay, we've looked at human being and the way human beings are generally thought of. We also looked at what a new or quantum definition of human being might look like. We've talked about the quantum field, how it's intangible, but you can experience its effects, and how it contains everything that's ever been thought or felt or experienced. And that because each of us is unique, our own experience adds to that field of possibilities that human beings choose from when they, we, choose our reality. Those possibilities we create in the quantum field will propagate through time forever. Now let's talk about freedom. There are probably as many definitions of this word as there are of us. Here are some dictionary definitions of freedom. And I recommend that you notice that all these definitions of freedom place freedom at one end of a scale, the other end of which is some sort of bondage or limitation. So freedom is the state of being free or at liberty rather than in confinement or under physical restraint. Freedom is exemption from external control, interference, regulation, etc. Freedom is the power to determine action without restraint, and so on. We could call that freedom from. It's freedom in the context of duality. Duality is the hallmark of thinking and being inside of an object-oriented definition of human being. And what do you get in duality? You get a pendulum. A pendulum swings back and forth. The harder you push it to one side, the more forcefully it swings to the other side. In duality, nothing is ever really achieved. Just movement back and forth, back and forth. So maybe that's not really freedom. What's freedom then? Well, as Amit Goswami said a while back, you can understand your life as one long series of choices that are in themselves the ultimate acts of creativity. See, freedom is choosing your own story from the infinitude of possibilities and having the power to actualize that story in your experience. It's the freedom to say no to your conditioning that makes you mechanical and determined, to say no to the constraints self-imposed by your beliefs. It's the freedom to say yes to whatever your heart desires, 
And that freedom doesn't live in duality. It's who you really are. Now, several further questions flow from this new awareness of the quantum field of possibilities. Here's the first one. Now what? If the quantum field includes all possibilities, how can I enlarge my field of possibilities? How do I go about accessing more of what's in the quantum field? To answer that question, I'm going to introduce a new metaphor. And the metaphor is the evolution of the computer. As you may know, the first personal computers didn't have a network connection or a network port. The first computer was an isolated, self-contained, separate thing. If you needed an answer, what you could search through for that answer was only what you, as an individual user, put there. Nowadays, of course, all computers have network ports and all are aware of the Internet. Now what you can search through is what all users have put there in all times and in all places. All possibilities that spirit has ever imagined are available to each of us to actualize. All it requires is our uncontradicted attention. See, we walk around thinking that we have to make the best decisions we can based on our own experience. But we have access to all the experience that all of us have ever had, and not just those of us alive now. All right, that first question was, now what? The second question all this calls up is, so what? I would guess that all of us have heard the phrase, you create your own reality. And we sense that it's true, though it's really hard to visualize. What does you create your own reality really mean? If you subscribe to that idea, I have a question for you. Do you create your own reality from the ground up, from nothing? Because if so, you have to deal with atoms and molecules and other things vibrational in nature. And none of us knows how to do that, at least not on a human scale. No, you don't create it from nothing. You create it from everything by ignoring or disbelieving everything to the contrary. Let's go back to our television set. The cable that the cable company gives you contains all of the programs you could possibly watch. To actually watch a program, however, you have to tune the TV to the right frequency. If you didn't do that, there would be so much information on the screen you wouldn't be able to distinguish anything. The TV has to essentially tune out or disregard everything else. You have to do the same thing with the infinitude of possibilities in the quantum field. You have to focus on the possibility you've chosen to the exclusion of all else. And by the way, each of us, when we were very young, had to work really hard to learn how to do that. Each of us had to work really hard to focus on the description of the world provided to us by our parents in order to learn to actualize it, to make it real, to perceive it. We started this inquiry with a basic premise on the same page. That premise is as follows, that we humans are spirit expressed as individual human beings. We incarnate, 
and reincarnate on this planet in order to learn, to grow. And in the process, we expand the possibilities in being human because we're all unique. Much like actors who take on various roles, sometimes heroes, sometimes villains, we grow in wisdom and maturity the more roles we take on. And it may be that in our greater role as serial actors, all that clouds or colors our joy and satisfaction, all that calls forth unhappiness and dissatisfaction, all that will turn out to be only a bunch of superstitions.